and turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. Chapter 17, as we continue our look at the life of Elijah. Go ahead and go to the next screen. There are basically two types of people in the world. There are people, hopefully it comes up here if it does, the, the next one. There are, well, let me pass the, the one that I wanted there. Let's see if it comes. Let's, well, maybe not. There are two types of people. There are people that when they look at their gas gauge, and when they see their gas gauge, and the little thing gets to about three-quarters of a tank or a half a tank, they get nervous. They get scared, and they begin to say, we need to find a gas station. We need to hurry up and get there because we could run out of gas. Some of you are like that. Others, if you can, you can go ahead and put up the other screen now if it's going to. Others of you, when the gas gauge gets to this, you are thinking, I got a good 20 or 40 more miles before anything gets, gets in trouble. And some of you are laughing because you're married to people that are different than you when it comes to the gas tank. I am this type of person. Maybe that surprised you. Maybe it doesn't. I'm a person that thinks it, it can keep going. In fact... Not long ago, we went to to Memphis with my family. We have a a giant 12-passenger van. The gas mileage is not its its one of its selling features. And we were in Memphis, and the gas gauge got to about like this, and the little thing goes, ba-ding, ba-ding, you know? And my wife's like, what's going on? And I'm like, nothing. Don't worry about it. We're about to run out of gas. Normally, you know, we're in Memphis. There's lots of gas stations, but it also happened to be rush hour, and we were on Interstate 40, and it was, and, of course, it doesn't. Really use much gas to sit there, but if you sit there long enough, it does use enough gas. And so we made it to the, and I, my tank holds 27 gallons, and I think I put in 26.992. So you know, we barely made it. And every time I I, I get to what one of the the, the, the accounts we're going to look at in First Kings 17, I, I always think of the gas tank because here God does a great uh, a miracle for Elijah. They have this jug of oil that gets really low. But God never lets it run out. It always has enough. And I always think, God, wouldn't it be nice with my gas tank if it just could get to that right there at the end and just stay there forever. But God does not do miracles for our personal convenience, unfortunately. But uh, he does them for other reasons. He does them to further his kingdom. And we're going to see two of them in this account in 1 Kings chapter 17. We are looking at the life of Elijah. And God is making it. Remember verse 24 of this chapter. It says, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. If you remember last week when I was, uh, we started to look at Elijah, that at the beginning of the chapter, he confronts Ahab. But God takes him through a series of events in this chapter before he has the big Mount Carmel experience. And he's making him, he's fashioning him into the type of person that can stand on Mount Carmel against the king, against 400 or more prophets of Baal, against an entire nation that has turned on God. And he is fashioning him into something. It makes me think of a verse in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which says this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. As Paul wrote to the church at Philippi there, And he's writing to these believers. He's saying, listen, you're converted. You have made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. The Holy Spirit is transforming and changing you. But you're not just sitting here waiting to get to heaven, just twiddling your thumbs. God is fashioning you into something. I know the good work that he began in you. He's going to complete it. And I see in chapter 17 an account of how God is doing this in the life of Elijah. 
And in essence also, the life of this woman that we're going to be introduced to, this widow in just a moment. And it should make us think of our own lives. That if we are converted, we are born again, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of our lives, as God is fashioning us into something. As we go through the events of our life, we see them differently. We don't just see them as random events that things just come and go, but we see God working in our lives to make us into the people that he wants us to be, to be completing us, as Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Today, we're going to look at verse 8 all the way through the end of the chapter. And normally, I make you stand as I read through it. I'm not going to do that this morning because I'm going to read and kind of stop and talk about it and then finish it out as we go. So I'm going to do it a little bit different this morning. So before I read the first part, I do want to just say a prayer. So would you bow your heads for just a moment? Lord, as we look into your word this morning, as we see the work that you did in the life of Elijah and this woman, Lord, I pray that as we look at the events of our own life, we don't just see a series of random events, but Lord, we see you working to complete the good work that you've started. In your name I pray, amen. Verse 8. The word of the Lord came to him, this is Elijah, rise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty. Until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. We'll stop there for this first part of what I want to talk about this morning. As we look as God is building Elijah. He's transforming Elijah and in essence this woman as well. It starts out with a very humbling experience at the very beginning. Remember, if you came last week and you listened as I talked about the beginning of the story of Elijah, God sent him to this this brook by Cherith, and there the birds came and fed him. Remember, the ravens brought him food in the morning and the evening, and he had the water to drink, and so he was supplied with his basic needs, but the water, what happened? It dried up. It got to the point where the one thing that he was depending upon was gone. God didn't say anything as far as we know to him about what was next, but all of a sudden the water is gone. And now God speaks to Elijah. And there's a part of me that imagines that at this moment, Elijah's like, all right, I'm ready to go. Uh, Probably close to, if not, a year has passed. And so it's been a year's time since he confronted Ahab. And now I think he might be thinking it's time to go, it's time to take on Ahab, go confront him, go deal with this issue. But instead, what does God tell him to do? He says, get up, go to Zarephath, which isn't even in Israel, it's in a different country, and you're going to go there and you're going to be taken care of by a widow. Not go and save a widow's life, not go do something heroic or great or whatever. You're going to go from being fed by birds, which is kind of strange, but all right. 
to now you're going to travel about 100 miles into a foreign country to be taken care of by a person who everybody else looks at as a, as a helpless, I mean, she's a widow. In that day and age, even more so now, she is absolutely dependent on other people. But I'm going to send you, Elijah, to be taken care of by her. And think of the woman a little bit, too. Think of her particular situation. There she is. One of the most amazing things that jumps right out is she lives not in Israel. She's not in in, in the the nation of of Israel or or Judah, the, the other kingdom, the southern kingdom. She's in Sidon in this town called Zarephath. But she's a follower of God. And God communicates to her, we don't really know how, communicates to her that I'm going to send somebody else, another mouth for you to feed. You can get from the gist of the story that I read that she's down to basically nothing left. She has a child and it's so bad, so desperate that she's to the point of saying, well, I'm going to use the last of what I have. So we have one final meal and then we're going to go and die. And somehow she gets word that God says, oh, but before that, I'm sending you a capable male who's going to show up and you're going to have to feed him. There's a sense of humility here. There's a sense of people being at the mercy of God and being told to do something that they're not expecting or or, or becomes difficult to do, but they're expected to be obedient. We all wonder what we would be like on Mount Carmel, don't we? Everybody who's read the account of Elijah, like I said last week, usually a lot of times we just go straight to chapter 18 to where God, he prays and fire comes down and consumes the altar. And we wonder what it would be like. Would we stand firm? Would we stand strong at that particular moment? And we may not have the exact scenario here, but in our culture, in our day, when we are confronted with so many things that are unbiblical or ungodly in our culture, would we stand up if we had the opportunity in some big, bold way? But before that, it's these simple little times of obedience. Get up, go, and be taken care of. It's strange, but somehow that's harder for a lot of folks. Lots of times we think the difficulty is when God gives us a lot of stuff, would we be willing to share it with other people? Are we going to be generous with our, our, our possessions? We're people that have a lot of stuff in the United States. But sometimes we've been put in those positions where we're dependent upon other people. As a pastor, sometimes I hear through the grapevine about people that are struggling and they need some help, but they have too much pride to admit it. Folks, sometimes God puts us in a position where we need other people. But are we too proud to admit it? But we wonder what it would be like to be on Mount Carmel, but we don't deal with the day-to-day as often as we should, as as God calls us. There was once a pastor by the name of F.B. Meyer. He served around the time of, of, um, back in about the 1800s, late 1900s, D.L. Moody. He was a great evangelist. He was over in England. He did come to the United States from time to time. And a young pastor who saw his ministry and and the effect that he had, thousands of people coming to Christ, he went to this this F.B. Meyer and he said, I would like to have a ministry like yours. I would like to be able to do great things for God. It's a great and noble desire that I have. What should I do? And F.B. Meyer looked at him and he said this, don't waste your time waiting and longing for large opportunities which may never come. But faithfully handle the little things that are always claiming your attention. We wonder about Mount Carmel, but we don't wonder about Zarephath in our own lives. 
It's 1040 in the morning. What have you dealt with already today? How did you handle this morning with your kids as you got ready to come to church? Or with your spouse? Did you read the word of God? Have you prayed? Have you handled the little things that God has placed in your life before, before you get to the big things that may occupy our minds and our imaginations? God sends Elijah to go and be with this widow while she takes care of him. And what happens? Well, they start to live this faithful life. She went and did as Elijah said in verse 15, and she and the household ate for many days. They just stayed there. Now, one of the things that you might miss as they faithfully live this life is some of the details. If you go back to up to verse 9, God says to Elijah, go to Zarephath, which belongs to what? Sidon. Now, you read that? Okay. But go back one chapter to chapter 16. I want you to look at verse 31. Verse 31 says this, and as if it had been a light thing for him, this is Ahab, the wicked king of the northern kingdom of Israel. If it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he, that's Ahab, took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the who? Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him there. God sends Elijah a hundred miles north to this town called Zarephath in Sidon because he sends him right into the heart of the enemy. Jezebel was the, the wicked queen. This is where she's from. This is her homeland. She's the one that kind of wears the pants in the family with Ahab. And her dad, her dad's so evil in his name is the name of, of, of Baal, this god that they worship. And Baal was a, a god of of the spring, of life. He was the God that people worshipped at that time when they wanted their crops to grow. They wanted vitality. They had very pagan practices that they enacted in order to try and evoke this, this idol to do what he did. And so when God sent a drought, it wasn't haphazard. This isn't something that God just on a whim said, well, I'll send a drought. A drought was a specific attack against Baal. The one thing that Baal was supposed to do is provide for them water and everything that gave them life. And here he failed. And God is the one causing it. As a little side note, God often works this way. The gods that come into our life that we become dependent upon, those are the very things that he takes away. It does make me wonder a little bit in our culture that is so dependent on our economy and our money and our power and prestige that at any moment, God could say, I'll just take that away from you. But here he sends Elijah. And he gets this, the, the little jug of, of flour and the jug of oil. And day in and day out, they rely on that. Faithfully, obediently following God in the midst of this pagan foreign land. If you go a couple of chapters further, you're going to read about Elijah's protege, the next one, Elisha. And I know that confuses people. You're like, God, really? Elijah and Elisha. And I, Elijah's the first one, and Elisha's the second one. It's like a ran in Iraq. You know, everybody, which one's which? Elijah and then Elisha. And Elisha has a very similar account. He has a widow. She's running out of oil. And Elisha's order to her was to take the jug that's getting low on oil and go fill up as many as you can. Go fill up, you know, find some, fill them up. And he does, she does that, fills up as many as she possibly can. But Elijah, that's not the case here. They just have the two. And the reason is, is, is because I think God wants them day in and day out to rely on him. 
It's like manna with it. when they were wandering in the desert. They couldn't collect more than just one day's worth or it would rot. And here they would use that little oil that's left to make what they needed for the day. And if you tried to fill up others, God gave them just enough so that each day they faithfully lived, obediently relying on him. And all of these people in this land that worshipped Baal, that were not followers of God, watched Elijah and this widow develop this stable life of faith. Makes me think of, of, of my years, my 40 some odd years as, as being raised in a Christian household. I went to a Christian school. I, I've been around a lot of followers of Jesus Christ. And as I think back to those whose lives made a huge impact on me, it wasn't just, you know, some guy who's a famous pastor who's on TV or has made lots of videos or whatever. It's those people that I saw in the congregations where I, I worshiped who faithfully followed God day in and day out. For years. They had their highs. They had their lows. But I watched them as they developed this stable faith. I would call them men and women of God. And I would imagine if I were to ask you the same question. Who are the people that made a big impact in your life? You may mention a few famous preachers or a Bible study you did. But more than likely, most of you would talk about somebody whose life you watched day in and day out. Week in and week out. Year in and year out as they faithfully followed God. So things are are just going along for Elijah and this widow. He's there living in Zarephath. They got enough to eat. Some time passes and then something happens. Look at verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He died. And she said to Elijah, what have you come against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed and he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So when we got to verse 16, there Elijah and the widow, and apparently she at least has a young son, are doing fine. God's providing for them day in and day out. And then the child gets sick and dies. And the Bible records the reaction of this woman, and to an extent, the reaction of Elijah. And it shakes her faith, doesn't it? What have you come against me, O man of God? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Nobody in here, everybody understands why she reacts the way she does. Her son dies. And her first thought is to look at Elijah and say, it's your fault, Elijah. Is that why you're here? And then she looks and her opinion of God is basically, God's just out to get me. 
You bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. In other words, it's punishment for the way I'm living or what I've done. Now, this is a woman that for the past who knows how long, every single day has watched a miracle. She's had these two jugs that didn't have much in them, and every day there's always enough to eat. But this crisis comes into her life, and that's all immediately forgotten. She has a crisis of her faith. And everyone in here also has triggers in their life that can cause a crisis of faith. We have those things that can come into our lives. We have those things that are so important to us that if something were to happen to them, if they were to to, to be taken away from us, it would cause a crisis of faith. Some people, it's their money. They're good as long as they, they're not, you know, they didn't win the $1.6 billion, but as long as they got what they've been earning, it's in the bank, they're safe. But if all of a sudden the stock market continued to tank and they ended up with nothing, they'd be wondering. For a lot of people, it's like this woman. It's their family. With God, as long as my family's safe and healthy and good, we're on good terms. But if something happens there, I don't know. You ever been there? We all have triggers. We all have those things. You Maybe you've had them happen in your life or maybe they're coming where you are going to be like this woman and to an extent, Elijah. It rocks your world. Your stable life of faith is challenged. God brings this into these, this widow and Elijah's life. Look at Elijah's reaction. He takes the child, says, give me your son. What does he do? He takes them off by himself up to his little room where he's staying. And I think of what he says there in verse 20. He cries out to the Lord. He does the only thing he knows to do, and that is to go back to God and to cry out and to pray and say, what does he say? Oh, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? It's rocked him a little bit. Everything's been going along fine, and now this some of us in this room have to have those moments with God where we have a heart-to-heart. He knows our hearts. He knows our worries. He knows our trigger points in our faith, and sometimes he allows those things to come into our lives. How are we going to respond? What are we going to do? Are we going to walk away? Or are we going to do what Elijah does here and go back to God and get real? He cries out to God, And then God answers his prayer. He asks for this child to come back, and God gives him the child back. And there's a part of us that go, okay, as as Elijah is changed there in verse 24, he's a man of God. The woman sees him differently. It's a tendency to look at it and say, well, yeah, that's easy because God brought her son back. I mean, who wouldn't change that way? A lot of us feel that way about miracles, don't we? We think, boy, if God would just do fill in the blank when our crisis of faith comes, if he just fix it exactly, then we'd be good. We think miracles will will convert people, but the Bible plainly makes us realize that's not true. Jesus in Luke chapter 16 told an account, you know, of of, uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man says, just send somebody back from the dead. Then my brothers will believe. And Jesus, no, they won't. Or Abraham said, no, they won't. One of the great accounts in the Bible is John chapter 6. If you look at your little handout, I'm going to tell you to read that when you get home. But I'll sum it up for you here. In John chapter 6, at the very beginning of John chapter 6, 
Jesus performs the only miracle that's recorded in all of the Gospels. He feeds 5,000 people with virtually no food. And of course, there's huge crowds. There's at least 5,000 people then. Huge crowds following Jesus at the beginning of chapter 6 when this great miracle takes place. And if you get to the very end of chapter 6, everybody's gone, except for a couple of his disciples. They all leave. And in between the beginning and the end, Jesus goes from performing that, that those miracles where they're fed or healing. And he basically says that, as long as I'm doing these things for you, you'll believe you'll be around me. But the moment, that's just my teaching, it's just me. Look how many people leave. He says a lot more than that. But that's the essence of what goes on there. It's, it's not the, the miracles are great, but they don't convert people. So how do we apply this to our lives today? What does she say to him at the very, very end? And this is extremely important. The woman says to Elijah, I know that you are a man of God. The word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever met this woman's son? Would you look at me like that's a very odd question? Like, pastor's lost his mind this morning why haven't you met him i mean this is a pretty amazing story because he's what he's dead i mean yes god brought him back to life is he still alive no he's dead god performed a miracle but it wasn't an everlasting the boy still eventually at some point in his life died now as we speak the gospel We don't speak to people that we talk about a Jesus that can just raise somebody back from the dead so that they can go and die again. We talk about a Jesus that died on the cross so that somebody who dies can go where? To heaven. So it can be made right with God. That is the word in our mouth. That is what we speak. That is what we tell people. The gospel. It's much more powerful than raising somebody back to life only to die again. It's to raise somebody to new life to live forever with Jesus Christ in heaven. That's what we preach. And as our lives are changed by the gospel, as God completes a work in us, as as Paul wrote to the Philippian church, as we are made into a, a message to this world to see, they see what are we talking about? Are we talking about a God that just simply is for this life and this life alone? Or are we talking about a God who sent his son for all eternity? And as they see our lives change, they hear a message and see that Jesus Christ is the Lord of our life. We live with the gospel being the exact center and purpose of why we are here. Hopefully they say at the end, the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The gospel that you preach is truth. I see it's changed your life. I see it's made you into something different. It's preparing for the Mount Carmel experience. For those moments when we're out in this culture, in this world, and people look at us. They need it now, don't they? I mean, what has happened since we were here last week? A bunch of bombs have been sent to to politicians. Yesterday, a a synagogue not far from where I grew up, a bunch of people were killed. People are looking in this world wondering, what's going on? It seems to be flying apart at the seams. They're looking to people like us. Is the word of the Lord in our mouths truth? Do you really believe that gospel you speak about a man who died so that we can live forever? God walks Elijah through an interesting little account. He sends him 100 miles north to be taken care of by a widow. She doesn't have enough, so he supernaturally sustains her, takes away her son, brings him back. Why Why is God doing all of these things? Is it just random? Is your life just a random series of events that comes in, goes, or whatever? No, it's how does Elijah, how is God fashioning Elijah? How is God fashioning you?
What crisis of faith are you facing right now? What are some of the things that are shaking you? Where are you turning? What are you crying out to the Lord for? What might you need to cry out to the Lord for? The world is looking at us and asking this simple question. Are you a man or a woman of God? And the word of the Lord in your mouth, is it truth?